The next day again, John was standing with the two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So last weekend, I brought to you for the first time a statement of our vision that is the result of all of the work that was done by the elders and by the vision team back in the 2017-2018 ministry year. We unveiled it last week for the first time, and along with it, I gave you a short phrase to remember. Rather than a long sentence, a short phrase, because I love simple, right? And so I gave that to you last week, and this week, you get a pop quiz, right? I want to see how well you remember it. So I used to be a teacher, and because I was a lazy grader, I made fill-in-the-blank quizzes, right? Those are the easiest things to grade when you're a teacher. So I'm going to give you a fill-in-the-blank pop quiz this morning. Are you ready? I'm going to put it up there, and then I want us to do it together. Here we go. All things by 50 by our... Ah, pretty good. One more time. All things 50 by our... Right, good job. You did pretty good. And those of you who weren't here last week, we excuse you. You know, you get an automatic A. Because you weren't here, you wouldn't have known it. You know, th- this phrase, that little short motto, uh, it represents thousands of man hours of work. <laughs> Uh, of course, that's not just that motto. Uh, there's also the values that we've preached and talked about this year. There's the, uh, the mission that we've talked about. Uh, also, our pathway to discipleship and to maturity. All of those things that we have been bringing to you this year are, were meant to help us understand and, uh, what the vision team and the elders went on, that journey that they went on. Also, to better understand who we are as a church where we believe God is calling us or who he's calling us to be. And now the vision statement and this vision is where we're going and what the future looks like. This little short phrase, there's a longer sentence that stands behind it. I gave it to you last week, recognizing that we are a church of broken people being restored by the gospel of Jesus Christ. By our 50th anniversary in 2028, we will equip and motivate our church members to bring gospel restoration to at least one friend or neighbor, and we will help plant 50 new churches in our community and around the world. And building on this idea of 50 by our 50th, I put before you four specific goals that all play on that idea of 50, and this morning, I want us to camp on the first of those goals and unpack it. That idea that 50 adult members will lead someone to Christ and into discipleship. And when I say someone, what I mean there is another adult. So 50 adult members lead another adult to Christ and into discipleship. This goal is obviously fleshing out the portion of our vision that says we want to equip 
and motivate our church members to bring gospel restoration to at least one friend or neighbor. And so last week, and throughout this week, as I've talked with various ones of you, it was kind of obvious that the light started going on, right? That you were connecting dots, you know, ding, ding, now I understand why this entire ministry here, we have been talking so much about being ambassadors for Jesus Christ. It's all leading up to this vision. Why we have been praying for three so we can befriend two and invite one. And in your covenant groups, you've been getting constant prompts and reminders about three, two, one, our, not only our area code, but just this idea that we are positioning ourselves as the people of God, praying for those who need Christ. All of this emphasis this year has been leading up to this idea of this vision where we are used by God to expand his kingdom. This is who we want to be. We want God to use us to grow his kingdom. We believe that every New Testament church has at the core, at the heart of its vision, the Great Commission, right? Our church, a biblical New Testament church, and another one three miles away, if it's a biblical New Testament church, what unifies us and makes us similar is our commitment and vision to the Great Commission. Now that will be expressed differently from our church to another church because we have specific giftedness, passions, abilities, a certain area of ministry that God wants us to do, and it will be different maybe than the church down the street, but what unifies us is that the Great Commission is at the center of our church's visions. A church that does not have the Great Commission at the heart and the center of its vision is not a biblical New Testament church. And so we have the Great Commission here because we want to be used by God to build His kingdom. And so when we look at this goal of evangelism, of, of bringing 50 adults to a saving and a discipling relationship with Christ, there is an underlying tension here. You know, when the pastor preaches on giving, there is tension in the room. I can feel it. I can cut it with a knife, right? Many of us feel guilty about it. Do you know there's a topic that even makes people feel guiltier than tithing? It's evangelism. It's evangelism. How many times have I myself, I think for many of us, we sit through a sermon on evangelism and we leave the room feeling guilty. And when the pastor begins to preach on the idea of bringing people to Christ, there is this sense of foreboding because we know we're gonna agree with us about everything he has to say on this topic. We've agreed with him in the past whenever he's talked about this topic, yet we failed to do what we say we agree to. And so we know, and we wonder, is it really gonna be different this time? And so when we come to a message on evangelism, deep down inside of us, admit it, there's a little nervousness, a little tension, maybe even already a sense of guilt because you say, I've heard it, I've tried it, I've failed. What's the difference this time? I guess this is just an area of my Christianity that I'm never going to be a part of and get victory in. Who wouldn't feel guilty if that's what's going on inside? Of course. But I want you to know something this morning. Our text, it should not leave us feeling guilty. It should encourage us. What we see in this passage is a great example of someone who brought 
gospel restoration into a life of another person. This story, it reminds us of something that the most effective way to bring gospel restoration into the life of another person is through the personal testimony of a family member to a family member and a friend to a friend. All the training, all the methods, everything else doesn't overcome this simple fact that the most effective way to join with Jesus in this mission of bringing people to Christ is to start with your family and your friends and give them a personal private testimony of what Jesus has done. Andrew, he's among the first two disciples of Jesus. And in this story, he brings his older brother Peter to Jesus. And so this, this story, I want us to look at it. I want us to get very practical this morning. And I don't want to guilt you about what has happened in the past or what maybe isn't happening in your life right now. The intention of this message is not to guilt any of us. It's to encourage us. It's to motivate us. And the way this happens is by seeing the application of the gospel that is in this passage. So first of all, first application is this. We are bringing people to the only person who can satisfy their deepest needs. The passage says the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, the idea here is he proclaimed loudly, behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. John here, the, the, the John that's being spoken of is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And he is fulfilling his role that God had given him. Just before these verses, John, a day before, John is in the desert. He's proclaiming the good news. The Messiah is coming. He's calling people to repentance. And who comes to him as a group of Pharisees and temple leaders and religious officials. And they ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we have been promised and that we're to be looking for? And he answered them and he says, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm the one that the prophet Isaiah predicted would come. I'm the one who is in the desert preparing the way of the Lord. I'm not even worthy to tie the sandals of the one who's going to come because I'm baptizing you with water, but he's going to baptize you with spirit and in fire. And so they come to him and they ask him these questions. And John, he refuses to take on the mantle that isn't his to take on. He fulfills his role. His role is not to be the center of attention. His role is not to build a kingdom for himself. His role is not to become, he could have, he could have been a celebrity prophet. In fact, if you read the Jewish writings, even that were done after his death, that have been preserved for us, he was highly respected by the entire nation. From our perspective, he is the last great Old Testament prophet, and Jesus will say the greatest of all the prophets, even greater than Isaiah and Moses and Jeremiah, was John the Baptist. With those kind of credentials, he could add a TV ministry and a big mansion like that, right? But he doesn't because that's not his calling. His job is not to call people to himself. His job is to point people to Jesus. That's his job to the only person who can meet their deepest needs. And so we read in John chapter 1, the day after those um, Pharisees came to him, 
John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. See, everyone, even 2,000 years ago to this very day, everyone's deepest need is to have their sins forgiven and to have their relationship with their Creator reconciled. And so very much like John, we have this same need. The audience that John was preaching to, we have the same need. Some of us in here have experienced the forgiveness of sins. Others have not. Some of you may be here this morning and like those people who were going out to the desert, like Andrew himself and Peter and the apostle John who wrote the book, you're seeking answers, you're seeking to understand what is going on in your life, what is missing in your life, what do you need, and the message of the gospel is what you need before anything else is to have your sins forgiven, and the way those sins are forgiven is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. And the good news of the gospel is that if you're in this state this morning and you have not been reconciled to your creator, that you've been relying upon yourself for your own salvation, your own good works to merit in some way eternity, the good news is today you can turn from those false and futile ways that will bring nothing but spiritual death. You can turn to Christ and trust your life to him and experience eternal life be made new. So in a very real way this morning, church, we have been given a calling that is similar to John's. Our calling is to bring people to the only person who can meet their deepest needs. That's our calling. You heard me refer to it just a few moments ago at the beginning of the message. You've heard me refer to it if you've been with us throughout this ministry year numerous times that regardless of our gifts, regardless of our personalities, every one of us is called to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Every one of us. How we carry that out in our lives will be different from one person to another, but the call to be an ambassador for Christ is universal if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. It's there. Let's, Let's hear those words again from 2 Corinthians 5. We spent a whole month in this passage. I want you to read it with me. I want you to read verses 18 and 20. So I'll read a verse, then we'll read it together and, and alternate like that. Let me start us off. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? Jesus is making what? All things, fill it in, new. This is true at the macro level with the universe, with creation itself, but most importantly, it's true at the micro level. It's true at the level of our personal, individual lives. He is making us new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Read with me. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now listen, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Read with me. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, 
be reconciled to God. Church, this point is encouraging because what we are offering, it is not temporal. It is not mildly effective in some cases, right? It is not useless information. It is not one option among many options that will have someone reconciled to their creator. What we are offering people is eternal and absolutely critical to the health of their soul. Without it, without it, our friends, our neighbors, our family members, and let's not equivocate this morning. Let's call it the way the scriptures call it. Without this, they will spend eternity separated from God, experiencing his judgment and his wrath upon their sins, never enjoying the wonders of the new heavens and the new earth. Never happen. That's how critical this is. And so what we are bringing to people is the answer to their everyone's absolute deepest needs. We're not selling ice cubes to Eskimos. We're not selling pastries to French bakeries. We're not selling cars to a used car. We are giving the words of life to people who are on the path to death. There's no more important role that God gives us than this role of being ambassadors for Christ. We are bringing people to the only person who can meet their deepest needs. Secondly, we bring what we know and have personally experienced. Second application, we bring what we know and have personally experienced. Verse 37 says, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. We shouldn't overlook this point. It's important to see that Andrew went and he brought Peter to someone who he had had a personal experience with. I mean, here here they are with John the Baptist. And apparently, you know, they hear him say, there's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. They connected the dots to what he had said the day before to the Pharisees, and they said, okay, we need to follow this guy. And they follow him, Andrew and the Apostle John, who writes this book. And so they hang out with Jesus. It's around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the 10th hour. So the implication here is they went back with him to where he was staying. They ate with him. They talked with him. They spent the evening in conversation with him. Right? And in some respects, what you have here is kind of interesting to see that Jesus starts his ministry and, and then at the resurrection, he ends it in a very similar way. He starts his ministry by getting alone with a couple of guys and opening their eyes to the reality of who he is. And after his resurrection, you remember there's these two guys on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus is risen from the dead, and he comes to them, and he walks with them to the next town, and along the way he expounds upon the scriptures, and they sit down and they share a meal together, and when they do, he opens their eyes and they realize, this is Jesus. And they're changed forever, like Andrew and John are changed forever. And so when Andrew spends the evening with Jesus and has this personal experience with him, what's the first thing that he does? He goes 
and he gets his brother. Because this interaction with Jesus changed his life. When you've experienced Jesus, you're changed. You bring what you've experienced. Church, let me say it another way. We cannot bring what we have not experienced ourselves. We cannot bring what we haven't experienced ourselves. So let me ask you, church, a really personal question. Some hard questions this morning. And I don't, I don't ask these questions to, to guilt you or to confuse you. I ask you these questions because I love you. Because the answers to these questions are huge. They're huge. We need to know where we stand. So let me ask you, have you ever experienced Jesus in such a way that it changed you? Have you ever experienced Jesus in such a way that it changed you? Are you different today because you have experienced Jesus? I got to say something hard here. And I don't say it out of anything other than love and concern for every one of you who is here. If you can honestly answer that question and say, you know, I, I really don't see that Jesus has changed my life, there's a problem. There's a problem. You see, you can have a head knowledge of Jesus. You can know all the facts of Jesus and what the Scriptures teach and still not be a follower of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the devils believe and they tremble. But when you have this kind of experience, where He is real to you, and there's a personal communion with Him, He changes your life. Have you ever experienced Jesus in such a way that it's changed you? If you haven't, your first need is to have that relationship to begin in your life. Now, second question. Also very important on this subject of of bringing gospel restoration. Are you spending time with Jesus so that he can continue to change you? Are you continually spending time with him? Because I tell you something, when we faithfully spend time with Jesus, he changes you. He changes you. You remember back at the very beginning of the, of the ministry year, earlier in the year, we looked at the, church, the churches in Revelation. And one of them that we looked at was the church of Laodicea. They had started out well. They had followed Jesus, but over time, their vitality, their energy, their vibrancy, and their, their zeal for Christ had faded away. They were apathetic. They looked more like the world than they did Jesus. And Jesus said, I would rather you be hot or cold, not lukewarm, because the condition that you're in right now makes me want to gag. And what was the cure? to Christians who found themselves in that condition of apathy, just going through the motions day after day. Yes, I believe in Jesus, but he really wasn't changing their life. What was the answer? In Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Sounds a whole lot like Andrew, doesn't it? I will commune with you and I will fellowship with you. And here's what happens when we commune with Jesus on a consistent basis. He changes us so that we can bring what we're experiencing. The very best gospel restoration that we can bring 
It's the effort that flows out of our own love relationship with Jesus. It is the work that flows out of the fruit of our worship of our Lord and Savior. Uh, this is why, um, you know, earlier in the year, we talked about our common pathway. How do we deepen as Christians? How do we grow as disciples of Christ? And what is at the very middle of this pathway to discipleship? What's the word? Say it with me. Worship. Worship. Worship has to undergird everything that we do, even bringing gospel restoration. Because when it comes to gospel restoration, we will bring what we are personally experiencing. If we're bringing self-help from Dr. Phil, that's what we will bring if that's what we're experiencing. But if we are experiencing the power of the gospel that comes out of a vital, life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ where we worship him, this is what we will bring to those who are in the deepest need. Third application. Bringing gospel restoration is not dropping truth bombs on the unprepared or the disinterested. Truth bombs is in the Greek. That's why I spent thousands of dollars on a seminary education, because I could mine those nuggets right there. Not really. But I think you will see the concept in the passage. Verse 40 says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus with Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. You know what I appreciate about Andrew? He's only mentioned three times in the New Testament, really. And in all three times, you find him bringing people to Jesus. And their lives are changed. What's interesting here is after spending the evening with Jesus, having his life affected and touched by Jesus, Andrew did not run down to the neighborhood in Jericho and start knocking on doors, cold calling on everybody who lived there. He didn't do that. You know, as a, as a teenager, I was raised in a tradition where uh, we, that's what we did. Uh, every Thursday night, we went out for, in Jacksonville for a couple of hours and the buses would drop us off and we would start knocking on doors, total strangers. And we had a spiel and we had a script and we would go through it and we would confront them with their need to be saved and we would call them to give their life to Christ and it was absolutely ineffective. Ineffective. Did it for years. I, I pastored a church, took over a church where the pastor who had started it, he spent three years before I got there, he knocked literally on every door in that neighborhood, in that, that town, North Florida. Thousands of doors over three years. He was dedicated at trying to bring the gospel to people who lived in those neighborhoods. You know how many people got, gave their life to Christ? You know how many people came into their church? Zero. Okay? Now, now this isn't to say that confrontational evangelism, there are some people... I think you are gifted 
in confrontational events. There are some people that can go into Panera Bread, put their Bible out, you know, and just, you know, they're, they're eating their bagel, and then they start talking to people all around them, and before you know it, there's a circle of people who are all engaging in religious and spiritual conversations, and they are giving the gospel. They, some people have the gift to connect with people very quickly, and they can do this on the street. They can do this in Panera. They can do it with their waitress. Some people have that giftedness, but for most of us, well, let me ask you a question. How many of you that is not your giftedness? Raise your hand. Yeah, it's most of us. And yet we are not exempt from being ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And these types of efforts, they don't work for us. Why do they not work for us? Because the scriptures already tell us, right? The, the, the wisest person on and the planet who lived outside of Jesus was Solomon. And he said, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he'll love you. In other words, if somebody is not interested in what you have to say, you're, you're wasting your time. And Jesus says it even more harshly. He says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I mean, that's harsh language, but you know what he's getting at? Don't waste your time with somebody who has absolutely no interest in what you have to say about Christ. Andrew didn't do this. Andrew went to the person who he knew was already interested. Somebody who had been with him, with John the Baptist, who was seeking answers, who had been baptized. He went to his brother who was already interested, and when he did this, he was not giving dogs what is unholy or throwing pearls before swine. He was giving a life-giving message to someone who was already primed and ready to go to hear the truth. He wasn't dropping a truth bomb on somebody who would just scoff. He dropped it on somebody who was ready. And so that brings us to an important application. If we're going to bring gospel application into people's lives, the work of evangelism is not where we start. For most of us, the work is what we call pre-evangelism. The work of establishing the relationship, the credibility walking with someone so that not only do you have the, the right to speak into their life, you're speaking into their life when they are ready to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So how do you do that? You bring grace into someone's life before you bring the truth. Bringing grace into someone's life prepares the way for truth. Remember, Jesus was full of grace and truth. That perfect balance. And for us, we have to understand that before we can bring truth into someone's life, we must bring grace there. How do we do that? How does that look? This is where I think some of us, we have real opportunities here, church. Listen, first of all, we do it by engaging at the practical, everyday level of life. It starts by being a coach in your little league. It starts by having your children involved in things in the community, sports, music, the arts. It starts by getting involved with other people who are not already a part of God's kingdom. And it will look differently based upon your stage of life. If you're older, maybe you're in a fishing club. That's one way I, I try. Or maybe it's a book club. Or maybe you join a dance club. I don't do that. 
<laughs> but you might be the person who can do that. I would scare people out of the kingdom of God if I was part of the dance club, right? But you get the idea, right? We have to engage at the practical everyday level. We recreate together. We become a tutor, an English as a second language teacher, a coach. Our home becomes the place where we throw killer Cinco de Mayo parties or Halloween or New Year's. And we open up our home and we invite our neighborhood, come, let's enjoy life together. Let's become friends. It starts by engaging at the practical everyday levels. It's going out to lunch with people at work, to the newcomer in our church, inviting them out for a meal. It's asking people that you become friends with a simple question that over time will, will just provide wonderful opportunities. How can I pray for you? And as they open up their life, you bring grace into them. Secondly, you bring love and concern to the perceived area of deepest need. Did you see that, that perceived area of deepest need? When, when you get into people's lives and you show them that you love them and you're interested in them and you've, uh, form, you form a relationship, pretty soon things start bubbling to the surface. Maybe the guy at work is talking, starts to talk to you about the fact that his wife wants him to go to marriage counseling and he's not too eager to go because most men don't want to go to marriage counseling. But he's bringing to you that what is happening in his life at that moment in time that is his perceived deepest need. It's his perceived deepest need because he doesn't know what his actual deepest need is yet. And so we get to come into their life and bring grace and bring love and concern. And when we bring love and concern, we're bringing grace into their life. And it prepares the way for truth. One third and final thing there. You invite these folks into the normal rhythms of your life. Invite them into your home. You pray before your meals. Don't change that. You go out to lunch. Just ask. Hey, can I pray for our food before we eat? If they say, oh, man, that makes me really uncomfortable. Okay, no problem. But ask. You ask, can I pray for you? Hey, you told me about the, the situation going on with your child. How's that going? I've been praying for him. You'll be surprised. Even agnostics and atheists, just in case they're wrong, they don't mind you praying for them. Okay? And it opens the door for us to be able to bring truth. Fourth and final gospel application. It may seem obvious, but I want to state it as it should serve to, to motivate and encourage us to bring gospel restoration to others. When we bring people to Jesus, He changes their entire life. He changes the entire trajectory of their existence. We read here that He brought Peter, or actually Simon at that time, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Here's this little brother. And that's intimidating, isn't it? I mean, brothers have not changed in 2,000 years. Most of the time, older brothers don't listen to younger brothers. Trust me on this one. I'm the youngest brother. They don't listen. This is intimidating. And, and this should encourage us. 
Like I said, we, we only read of Andrew a few times. He's bringing people to, cry, to, to Jesus, a boy and his food for the feeding of the 5,000, some religious people, and that's it. He, by all counts, if you look at the grand scheme of things, he was one of the lesser of the apostles. But God used the younger brother, the lesser apostle, to bring into the family of God the very foundational apostle of the church, Simon Peter. You never know how God is going to use the work that we're involved in. And that work may simply be planting seeds into someone's life. It may be that you have the pleasure of seeing them come to Christ and beginning to disciple them. But everything in between, we just do not know how God is going to do this because it is God who does the ultimate work. He just uses us to bring gospel restoration into people's lives. But when he does it, he changes the trajectory of people's lives. Peter goes from being Simon the fisherman to ultimately Peter, the head, the rock of the church. When we bring people to Jesus, folks, we change the trajectory of their lives. That should motivate us. Because when we love them and we care for them and we're concerned for them, we know that what we have to offer them, it is the answer to their deepest need. And that answer is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage of Scripture. Lord, many of us have been praying for specific people this year. And so even now, Lord, I want us to have a moment of silence. Would you hear the prayers of your people as we lift friends and loved ones up to you and ask you to do a regenerating work in their hearts? Lord Jesus, use us in whatever way you so decree. Whether it's in a minor way or a major way, would you use us as, as your ambassadors, men and women and children and young people who bring gospel restoration into people who have been separated from their creator, who need to know Jesus, to know you, Lord, as their personal Savior. And for the one who is here this morning, not naive enough to think, Lord, that everyone who sits here this morning is a follower of you. Maybe it's head knowledge and not heart knowledge. Maybe it's tradition and not reality. Would you work on their life? Would you open eyes that cannot see and hearts that have not received the word of life? And would you redeem those who need it? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.